Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast, where we explore connections between research in different fields. I'm Jeannie Hedden-Gallagher. This week, we're talking about how the structure of something can make all the difference, whether that thing is a laboratory or a tumor. We'll start with the latter. Here's Tori Wells. Kristen Mills is an assistant professor of mechanical engineering at Rensselaer, and she studies some of the mechanical aspects of cancer and tumor cells and their environments. We had a conversation recently about how she got into this unique area of research and about some of the questions her lab is studying. Professor Mills, you often describe your research as an engineering approach to studying cancer. Can you start by just explaining what that looks like in your lab? The reason I say that, I think, is mostly because I'm not so formally trained in, in biology. So the way that I think about the problem is, is really um, the mechanics of the materials first. And then as I... Uh, have more experience in the field, and as I learn more about the biology and what the signaling pathways are, how proteins uh, interact, and and how genetic expression will affect how a cell behaves and mechanically interacts with its environment. I then trying to link the the biology to to what I have learned about the mechanics of the system. So I think that's why I always I always say this is an engineering approach or <laughs> I think about these these systems through an engineering lens. It's it's because I'm thinking about the mechanics first and then trying to link what I can learn about the biology of the system to that. Your background, obviously, as we talked about, is in mechanical engineering. So I'm curious about how you came to study cancer and tumor cells and their environments. I did not start graduate school thinking that I would get a PhD, but enjoyed the research for my master's thesis. And I um, got a national science graduate National Science Foundation graduate research fellowship and so that gave me the leeway to choose whatever I wanted to to work on and my PhD advisor was incredibly supportive of that and even at that time I'd gotten really interested in cell adhesion but again like the like my answer to your first question I I did not formally study biology like at all. So again, I sort of thought about that problem only from an engineering standpoint. And it didn't really work out that I studied cell adhesion for my PhD. I mean, not, just neither I nor my PhD advisor had the, the background knowledge to really delve into that. So, but, I, I think he knew I was really interested in, in biological applications. So um, a, a professor from the biomedical engineering department had contacted him about a thin films problem. So I, although my what I studied for my PhD was very, um, very much the mechanics of that system, its application was in cell biomechanics 
Um, and so I worked together with some uh, PhD students who were doing the cell experiments and that just only strengthened my interest in um, wanting to study the interactions of cells and materials. When I was looking for a postdoc, I, that's the direction I was uh, looking into. One of the folks on my PhD committee uh, had recently gotten interested into computational studies of tumor growth and showed me a paper then 10 or 11 years old, the paper was already, so now it's it's quite old, but a, a sort of a, a, a very first study of people putting tumor cells into hydrogels of different uh, stiffness and reporting that increasing the stiffness of the hydrogel would impede the growth of those tumor cells in, in the hydrogel. And that, that was just the snap, that was it. That was like, that's informed, that notion has informed everything that I've done since. I mean, it turns out it's not really as straightforward as they made it seem in the paper. But again, the fact that um, we can use uh, mechanics, like the framing of the mechanics of the material to look at tumor growth and tumor progression and say something about it. Uh, just captured me and that's what I've done since. <laughs> so let's talk about your lab. Can you explain a little bit about what you and your team are working on and perhaps some of the questions that you're considering right now? So what are we doing with the environments and systems that we build? So we, I think one thing that's important to, to distinguish what we do from maybe what some other people do, we're, we are not polymer chemists or we're we're not uh, coming up with new materials and new um, formulations and and stuff like that so so we're you know somewhat restricted you know by our own uh, expertise to using materials that are available but that's that's actually not really a problem and there are plenty that are available and we use those those materials, primarily hydrogels, uh, but also elastomers. We use those materials and different methods to, to pattern them, either to look at different micro scale geometries that, that make up um, the micro scale geometry of, of organs. So specifically, recently we've looked at uh, channel models, which is really just molding a cylindrical channel inside of these materials to study how cancer cells interact with tubular geometries. This is important in the, the mammary duct and the development of um, breast cancer. Uh, it's also important in how tumor cells travel through the vasculature and uh, arrest and develop into tumor emboli in in the vasculature. So we've we've looked at both. And in doing so, our hypothesis is often that the mechanical stiffness, if you will, that's simplifying it, but, the mechanical properties, uh, which is often simplified as as the stiffness, how uh, when so when you 
push on something, how hard or soft it is, how that plays a role in, in the progression. And we, as, as well as, as plenty of others, have found that, that it certainly does play, play a role how stiff the environment is in, in the behavior of tumor cells and their malignancy, their malignant behavior. And what you and your lab find could be very important to the overall understanding of various cancers, while also giving other teams information they need to come up with potential therapeutics, right? Right, right. We're, we're certainly not qualified to do, for example, the pharmacological development, uh, but it would be our, our aim to identify certain genetic expressions, certain proteins that, that play uh, a role in uh, driving the abnormal reactions of tumor cells to altered mechanical environments or or vice versa it's it's this is really also sort of a a chicken and an egg question mm-hmm. because the tumor microenvironment is uh, mechanically altered and the tumor cells also have an altered sensing of that mechanical environment. What do you see or what do you hope for your lab in the next five to 10 years? Is there a question that you'd really like to study? Is there an area that you'd like to pivot into or that you're even just starting to pivot into? What do you hope for your lab? That's a really good question. Um, I think there are, there are sort of two main things right now that I see carrying us through the next several handful of years. One of them is really, I'm really fascinated by this compressive mechanical feedback in, that happens in, in tumor growth. And this is, I mean, this is where we're, where the lab is, is heading um, these days. And so this has to do with, again, the, the stiffened environment of many solid tumors, not all, but many solid tumors. And yet, even though it's stiffened, the, the tumor cells still divide in it. And to divide, they have to generate forces to, uh, to, pull, to pull apart and create new cells. So. Uh, I'm very interested in this. What I notice about what we do, what I do, and how I think of things is I keep thinking about them on smaller and smaller scales. So I envision us, uh, you know, going down to uh, single cells, whereas until now we've worked mainly with aggregates of cells and tissue scale things, but I see us going down to smaller and smaller length scales to to address this question of how do cells divide in stiffened environments. Uh, and then the other thing that that we've my lab is is gotten into uh, is so I guess one of these other fields that's not exact exactly cancer but related and that's neurofibromatosis. Um, this is a genetic uh, tumor predisposition disorder, although uh, most of the uh, tumors that these patients develop are benign in nature. Um, 
they are still really horrific for for the patients, but there's a relatively small chance. There's only a relatively small chance that some of them become uh, cancerous. And this is a disease that not really not very many people at all have have really thought about addressing uh, addressing it from the side of of the mechanics of the disease. So we uh, are getting into this, which has been really interesting and will be really interesting because there's been very little to no mechanical characterization of these tissues done. So I suspect that between between these two problems that will keep us busy and generate plenty of, of questions in the in the future. I recently spoke with James Malazita, an assistant professor in the Department of Science and Technology Studies, about how the design of a laboratory can influence the kind of information that comes out of it. You know, we have these assumptions about scientific work, right? That scientific work is purely objective and that the role of laboratories in scientific work is to essentially run neutral experiments that produce certain sets of data or facts that are then translated to the public. Uh, but since the 1980s, science and technology studies scholars have realized that, you know, while science is certainly empirically valid, labs actually do a lot more work than just producing data. Uh, they also produce cultures of knowledge, so legitimizing what counts as a real fact versus a, a fake fact. Uh, they also produce uh, ways of legitimizing uh, what counts as truth. So what are the barriers towards provability? What are the boundaries of provability? What are the methods we are allowed to use and we are not allowed to use in terms of legitimizing our uh, scientific expertise? Uh, but they also produce uh, social phenomena. So how we as scientists and researchers and lab technicians all work together in order to produce collective understandings of what the role of science in our society is. Uh, and so a lot of my work that I'm bringing into what are known as the digital humanities is this critical analysis of laboratory culture as producing both scientific fact, but also social culture. What are the digital humanities for those who may not know? Yeah, so the digital humanities, uh, depending on who you ask, uh, are essentially humanities uh, scholars looking to find new ways of integrating computational methods into what is traditionally a text and language-based field. Uh, and so the digital humanities have a broad array of, of scholarly directions, everything from kind of doing textual studies and interpretive studies of software to developing new types of software tools and data sets to perform uh, new types of analyses. Um, and so the digital humanities have begun the shift in these more textual based fields to creating collaborative environments called labs. Uh, and essentially thinking through what does it mean to do laboratory work in an academic field where we traditionally have not had scientific laboratories. This is in itself uh, kind of evidence of what I was talking about earlier with laboratories producing more than just data, right? Laboratories are successful not only because they can produce scientific facts, but also because they can produce new types of knowledge and new ways of, of doing scholarship. It's just another, it's, it's another perspective. It's another way, like you've walked through that big door of data and, and you've seen the humanities now through a different lens, right? Right, exactly. 
Interesting. So, so what did your research find? Uh, so the uh, research that we've been creating uh, is largely through the Digital Humanities Lab at Rensselaer that I founded and uh, work with undergrads on called the Tactical Humanities Lab, which is focused on taking digital technologies and thinking through new ways of using them, uh, often towards uh, ends to create social justice. And so we've had lots of individual projects about uh, thinking through DNA testing kits and ways of, of alternative methods of using them, uh, thinking through even things like synthesizers, uh, musical instruments, um, and computer science pedagogy, right? So we have a lot of different kind of ground up initiatives. But one of the things that we had to figure out since the digital humanities are so new is, well, what exactly is a digital humanities laboratory? Or what does it mean to do laboratory work in a humanities setting? Uh, and so we as a lab actually began not by running experiments, but by reading together. And so we would read a lot of other work published by some other digital humanities labs in, uh, uh, in North America, like at uh, University of Victoria. Um, and we found that, you know, because this is so new, a lot of humanists uh, who are also starting their own labs were kind of taking this for granted understanding of laboratories, right? They were internalizing this more popular rhetoric that laboratories are just about producing outcomes and producing data. Uh, and so what uh, the project in the digital or the tactical humanities lab began turning into was, okay, how do we actually bring our humanistic and critical training reflexively to bear on the structure of the laboratory itself? And so we began, um, uh, writing and doing some public advocacy work to other humanities uh, scholars at other institutions, essentially saying that as a digital humanities scholar, not only do we need to recognize both the empirical and social work that labs do, but we get to decide what digital humanities labs look like. We don't have to borrow wholesale the model that's coming from the sciences, we can actually inject some of our more political and critical understandings about lab work into the core fabric of what it means to create a digital humanities laboratory. So what is it? What is the ultimate digital humanities laboratory? What does it look like? So in the uh, beginning of the 21st century, digital humanities labs were essentially computer labs, right? It was this idea that what, what labs are, are just equipment, right? And as long as we have enough equipment, we'll be able to produce stuff. Um, and that gets you, you know, certain way down the road. But after a while, the technology isn't enough on its own, right? You need your laboratory to be motivated by critical and cultural questions. Uh, and so now we're seeing both at RPI as well as at other institutions is laboratories, uh, digital humanities laboratories, whose major focus is not just on what cool toys can we play with, which is great, don't get me wrong, uh, but rather on what sort of critical questions and public facing questions can we actually begin our laboratory work with, right? So rather than understanding labs as spaces of technical production, understanding humanities labs as spaces of social production that also happen to use technical objects, right? So it's almost inverting or flipping over the traditional imagination of what a lab is supposed to do. Often there, there tends to be this, this breaking point where it becomes like, well, what do we do now, right? With all these, these questions and um, uh, all these pieces of technology. Uh, and often what I end up saying is, well, what motivated you to get into the humanities in the first place, right? And it's almost always an interest in the human record, right? An interest in history, an interest in uh, how text and literature and poetry and music have shaped and shifted over time in between cultures. 
And I say, well, just because you're using computers now doesn't mean that core interest has to change, right? So rather than thinking about yourselves as we're here to bring in new technology and 3D printers and Arduinos into the humanities, rather think about what can core questions about music and poetry and art bring to com computational practice. Um, and so again, it's, it's that kind of um, uh, follow the strengths that you already have. Can your research be used in more of the traditional science labs as well, or, you know, the hard science, the engineering, the biology lab, the chemistry lab, can the output of those labs also be influenced by how they're designed? Uh, for me, it's funny this morning, I was just reading articles about uh, the COVID vaccine, right? And we're <laughs> kind of in this moment where uh, we're producing more and different types of vaccines, and, and there's lots of questions and uncertainty and stress in the public, especially in the United States, about are these vaccines safe? Are these vaccines effective? What are we doing with the new changing models of, of COVID as, as we're moving forward? Um, and for me, answering those questions and building public trust is not just a matter for or a concern for politicians and newspapers. For me, that building of public trust is also an output of laboratories, right? So as a laboratory scientist or as a technician, even in STEM, your job is always twofold, right? Obviously, the use of scientific and engineering skills to produce things like the vaccines themselves, incredibly important but also being able to communicate with broader audiences to talk about why these vaccines are trustworthy, why we should trust in the scientific process. So leaning into the social elements and the social knowledge that your lab can produce in addition to the technical and scientific knowledge. You know, as I was reading your research, it felt like, you know, how you structure your lab and how you structure your thought is kind of a, a metaphor for pretty much how we structure life. Like, how I structure my daily calendar will impact what I'm doing in the day, how I structure my kitchen cabinet, you know, my refrigerator, how things are structured really has incredible impact beyond the world of academia. This idea that our material practices, how we construct our calendars, how we build our houses, how we build our spaces, they actually create our social orientations to the world and vice versa, right? So what I do in my kitchen is both the result of obviously the, the material uh, affordances I have in the kitchen, the capacities I have, but also my socially ingrained understandings of what a kitchen can do and what it's for. Um, and all these things contribute to both the, everything, the types of food that I make to the idea of a kitchen as a social space, right? We're studying all these different spaces from labs to homes, to public spheres, to the, the internet, as always this material discursive space, the structure and our understandings of the structure are not distinct things. They actually co-produce or co-create one another, right? Uh, what we know and how we interact in the world produces who we are. That's actually one of the, the core questions and core objects of study in the humanities is how, how do we come to be human beyond just the structure of our DNA, but through our society, through our language, through our art, through our interactions with the material objects that we've created. This episode of Why Not Change the World was recorded remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on whatever app you're on. And if you'd like to learn more about what's happening at Rensselaer, visit rpi.edu. Thanks for listening.